Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we're thrilled with everyone here tonight to hear. This is part of our Writers Live series. Um, as many of you may know, the Pratt has a very, very robust Writers Live series. Uh, Judy Cooper and the staff do a tremendous job of bringing in excellent speakers. And tonight we have some of our homegrown people, so it's particularly fun. Uh, uh, Dr. Carla Hayden, our CEO and Executive Director, wasn't able to be here tonight, so she asked me as one of the members of the board to greet you all and to make sure you know how delighted we are that you're here. We hope that you get information either electronically or in the mail through the Compass. If you don't, if you feel like you're missing out, oh, there's a Compass in the back. Thank you very much. If you will look, turn around, the lady is holding it up. Thank you. Um, so uh, tonight we're going to hear a little bit about how so social progress is made on the ground. As uh, we know, uh, right now the House of Ruth is an institution in our community. It's a given. We, it's there. It's a resource, and we all know it. But it wasn't always the case. So tonight we're going to have the opportunity to hear from Dr. Parker and Judge Friedman about how um, an idea, what came, something came from an idea, a concept, to a reality. Uh, first I'm going to ask Linda Jones, who's on the board of the House of Ruth, to introduce our speakers. And then after they talk, uh, Sandy Timmons, who's executive director, is going to sort of bring us up to date about the House of Ruth. So um, we'll have a, a full evening, but we'll probably always try to respect your time and probably be out here in about an hour. All right? Thanks to everybody for coming this evening. We're pretty excited about the evening and about the book. Um, I joined the House of Ruth board in, I think, 90, 90, 1997 or 98, which seems like a really long time ago. But even by then, it was a really well-established organization. In Baltimore, there was a thriving shelter. There were all kinds of counseling and outreach programs. There was a child care program. There was a very active legal clinic with employed lawyers and paralegals. There was an intervention program for abusers. And that was already in place. And when I joined the board, I sort of took it for granted that that was the House of Ruth. Everybody in the city knew about the organization, thought highly of it. Uh, we were able to raise money, get lots of support, get political support, etc. But of course, it wasn't always like that. And the two women that we're going to hear from tonight, together with a really hearty band of fearless women and a few men, uh, were working on these issues 25 years before that, before, during a time when our society didn't even really recognize intimate partner violence, as we now call it, as, as a crime. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about our two speakers. Judge uh, Katie O'Farrell Friedman is a retired judge of the city, Circuit Court of Baltimore City. She's from Baltimore, and she went to the College of Notre Dame of Maryland. She then got her law degree at the University of Maryland Law School and her master's in social work from the University of Pennsylvania Social Work School. She ran into the issue of domestic violence when she was representing women in divorce pleadings, divorce, divorce proceedings as a young legal aid bureau lawyer in the early 1970s. And her background in social work and her understanding of social policy and practice inspired her to use both the law and her social work disciplines for social change on behalf of abused women. And she's really been doing that her whole life. Dr. Barbara Parker, there she is, has been actively researching violence against women since 1975 and is a, has published extensively on related issues. She was for many years uh, a um, 
the, a professor of nursing in a named chair position or named faculty position at the University of Virginia School of Nursing. She's received lots of awards and recognition for her research, including one from the Nursing Network on Violence Against Women International. And just to give you a couple of examples of some of her research work, she was she did the first research around that documented the high incidence of violence for pregnant women in the year before pregnancy and during pregnancy. And since then, that research has been replicated and uh, validated many times. In another study, she tested an empowerment intervention that had been developed for abused women that was found to significantly reduce the amount of violence that they were experiencing even a year later. And that intervention is now used uh, pretty consistently in the U.S. and internationally. And more recently, she's worked on the experiences of children who grew up in a home where one parent killed the other. And I think we all know that there's more and more research on the effect on children of uh, violence in, in the homes. So between these two women... Judge Friedman and Dr. Parker, we cover law, social work, nursing, and academic research. And their training and background were obviously well-suited to their work in this area. But it was really their passion and tenacity, along with a large group of people that worked with them over many years, that led to the founding of the House of Ruth, Maryland. And in addition to founding this agency that stands for so much and does so much in our, in our state and really uh, is nationally known, their work has led to much greater public awareness of the issue to change laws that now protect victims and their children in a way that never happened in the past and really to greater safety and hope for many women in our state. So we're grateful for your work and for the work of so many people here who've been involved with the House of Ruth over the years. And we're grateful that you documented this history in this book. It's, I, I recommend that you read it. It's really pretty compelling story of social change, community organizing, and very effective networking with a large group of people. Um, and I encourage you to read it. And we're really grateful that you're here to talk to us tonight. So thank you so much. You know, it's a small room, and I have a loud voice. I'm, and I'd like to move around, so I'm going to... I have to use it? Oh, you're recording it? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'll try not to flail too much. <laughs> the first thing I want to do is, is to thank uh, Susan Gauvey and the, the board of the Pratt and Linda Jones and the board of the House of Ruth, Maryland, for this lovely uh, evening. Um, I, I have to also say that Barbara and I were... Like boil, uh, we just almost fell on the pavement when we walked by the building and saw that huge <laughs> poster. <laughs> so I don't know if Jack's still here, but thank you. Um, you know, it's really when we started. Um, Barbara, well, maybe I should tell you a little bit about how we. Somebody did ask me how did it get started. I think that was you, wasn't it, uh, Judge Hurd? And I said, well, wait, because we're going to talk about that. Um, uh, the not last year, but the year before, was the 35th anniversary of the founding of the House of Ruth, uh, November 1977. 
And uh, the House of Ruth had a whole year of celebration, and one of the things they did was uh, they had a, published a newsletter, which they published regularly, but uh, with some information about the founding, and they interviewed me. And during the course of the interview, at the end of it, the uh, person who was interviewing me said, well, now that you've you know, had um, all of this experience and this career, what's next? And it co- kind of caught me, caught me off guard. And I said, um, well, I, I don't know. I think if I really could do what I'd like to do, I'd like to write a history of the founding of the House of Ruth. And she put that in the article. Barbara, of course, is on the mailing list for the House of Ruth. She got the newsletter. The next thing I know, I get a telephone call from Barbara, and we finally caught up with one another. She said, are you really going to do that? And I said, I'm thinking about it. She said, I want to do it with you. And I said, well, I'm going to do it then. So that's how it happened. Barbara thought... um, that it would be an article. And I said, Barbara, I really think it can be a book. But, of course, it's more like a monograph because, you know, they're not a whole lot of pages. But then I realized that it's almost as long as one of my favorite books, Fitzgerald's Great Gatsby. So I thought, well, okay, I'm going to call it a book. So (laughs) it's a book. But the the book sets forth... um, really the steps that we went through. Um, It it started with uh, awakening of women uh, through the inspiration of the civil rights movement, uh, sort of morphing into the women's movement, and a sense that we needed to take control of our own lives and that we needed to uh, become uh, more involved in the economic and political and uh, professional life Uh, business life of um, whatever community we were in. And this was sort of happening all over the country. And so um, some of the women who were involved early on were lawyers. Some, like Barbara, were nurses. There were social workers, educators, uh, business people, volunteers, Um, And lots of organizations have sort of coalesced as we moved through this. um, So I'm going to talk about some of the early efforts uh, just briefly. And then Barbara, who's been struggling for weeks now with a cough, hopes that she's going to be able, with the help of some slides, to talk a little And then Linda already told you that you're going to be hearing at the end from uh, Sandy about the current status. But but one of the wonderful coincidences of life is that Marcella Schuyler, who is the first president of the House of Ruth, was going to be in town. And as a matter of fact, she and uh, my husband and another friend are going to have lunch together tomorrow. And it finally dawned on me that she was going to be here when Barbara and I were doing this. And I said, you have to come. And she said, I wouldn't miss it. So she's here and she's going to pitch in. So there's some things that I was going to say that, that Marcella, because she was really at the core of it. So I'm sure that you, uh, many of you probably remember the women's movement and the Equal Rights Amendment, and that as a matter of fact, in 1972, the state of Maryland passed its Maryland Equal Rights Amendment. And this all gave impetus uh, to, to women and the, the rights of women. And 
those of us who were working at um, Legal Aid at the time, as Linda had mentioned, we were seeing a lot of women who were talking with us, uh, some reluctantly and, and some pretty openly, about being abused. And then there were people like Barbara who was uh, uh, getting her degree in nursing, was it your master's degree at that time, who was working, uh, and she'll tell you a little bit about that, at Harbell, and she was seeing it, and there were other people who were seeing it. And um, some of these people were all coming together uh, through the National Organization for Women, the local group, and Marcella was a part of that. So uh, we were at the, the, just speaking for the lawyers at the Legal Aid Bureau, we were getting bogged down in um, our cases and trying to represent women in court and attempting to try uh, to do what we could to help them uh, deal with this through the legal system. Uh, But I actually had a degree in social work, too. So I saw that there were tremendous social implications and that this was much larger than just case by case trying to help individuals and that we needed to do something to try to address it uh, from a, a, a systematic approach. And it was my husband, actually, Richard Friedman, who also has a background in social work, who knew Marcella Schuyler because of some work that they did at one of the children's centers, who said to me, I think that you should contact the University of Maryland School of Social Work and ask them to have students work with you so that they can do that piece of it and develop um, sort of like a framework for how to go about this. Uh, and I said, that's a wonderful idea. So I contacted the University of Maryland School of Social Work, and they agreed because I had a social work degree. I couldn't be a supervisor, but I could be a field supervisor. So each student, we had three uh, in three consecutive years uh, who were with us for a term and did various things like uh, uh, trying to review literature and uh, making contacts, doing some networking. And um, we ended up finally, our last, the last year that we had a student was with Marcella. And Marcella, I'm going to ask her to step in now because she's the one that wrote a, a policy piece for her placement with me at the Legal Aid Bureau that really was the blueprint for how we would go about that. So can you do that just... Okay. Well, I had two challenges. The first one was the one that Katie just described, and the second one was working for Katie. (laughs) But that was an absolute joy. Um, You know, I have to say that to have a success like the House of Ruth, you have to have a really compelling issue. A lot of organizations don't make it because they don't have a compelling issue. But what could be more compelling than this? The truth was, it wasn't understood by anyone. People didn't know what the word meant. In fact, we have some stories about that. Um, And so our job was to be the communicator of the issue. And so that was number one. And that we did by reaching out to community organizations, churches, people who just had such diverse backgrounds from ourselves. And it worked. And today, you're all here because you represent those people. 
and you are those people. And what could be better than that? I want two more points, though. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> well, what Marcella did was she framed the issue and she uh, developed a, a way of um, mobilizing a network. And she used the Bregersprecht mm-hmm. principles on how you community organize. And that was what the, the plan, and, and I won't go into the details of it. But anyway, we framed the issue in a lot of different ways. Um, Marcella was very instrumental in getting um, us on, uh, through the media, uh, newspapers, uh, television appearances, radio, um, did networking with people like Women in Self-Help. Uh, some of you may know Toby Mendeloff, uh, who has passed recently and was one of the people that we interviewed, uh, who was extremely impressed with what Marcella was doing and brought the women in self-help uh, to support us and also connected us uh, with the Maryland Commission for Women. And so we had a lot of organizations, uh, in addition to the Legal Aid Bureau developing a Batter Women uh, project, the Maryland Commission for Women uh, under Shoshana Cardin had a, a project. The Women in Self-Help was working with Marcella. Uh, lots of times Marcella was identifying uh, victims who would then talk to the press and um, provide information anonymously uh, that they could use in their articles. And then the national organization held symposiums and had meetings. And there were many, many others. So that was, that was sort of the framing of the issue and the mobilizing the network. And we ended up with a network of um, just an amazing number of people. Um, did you want to say something more? Because I'm going to ask... Um, Barbara, I'm turn this over to Barbara. Go ahead, turn it Okay. We've already talked about this. Um, I want to tell you just a little bit about the timeline that there was about this issue. In 1970, the first shelter was established in London by Aaron Pitsey. And Aaron was the very first person that wrote about the issue of violence against women. And when I was doing my master's work, I would be in the library, and the Nursing Times, which is a journal out of London, was the only place that she published. And Aaron was a very flamboyant person, and so, uh, but she managed to get attention. And the first book she wrote was called Scream Quietly So the Neighbors Don't Hear. In 1972, the Battered Women's Project started at the Baltimore Legal Aid, and as Katie said, uh, the Maryland Commission on the Status of Women. These are some early pictures. As you can see, that's Katie on the left. She doesn't look a bit different. And Mary, Mary Pat Clark, is that right? No. No. No, that's uh, Pauline Menace. Oh, Pauline Menace, Pauline Menace. Oh, who helped support some of the early uh, legislation on the issue. In 1976, we had our first citywide conference. By this point, we had the Baltimore Task Force on Violence Against Women going that, as Katie said, was a coalition of many people. 
And we actually were able to, because I taught at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, we were able to use their building for the very first conference. And, of course, you have to understand, we had no money. We were doing everything by a shoestring. And so we all brought our coffee makers from home for coffee and plugged them in at the School of Nursing, at which point we blew a fuse or something, and all the power went out. Um, in 1976, following that conference, was the establishment of the Baltimore Task Force on Battered Women. And in March 1977, Erin Pitsy and three of her assistants from London came to Baltimore with speeches at Notre Dame and Essex Community College. I'm going to go back for a minute. As we were, we were this task force that, as I said, had no budget at all. And someone had the bright idea, well, we should have a meeting and invite Erin Pitsy. Everyone was like, oh, yeah, you know, sure, we have no money to bring her from London. But someone was brave enough to call her, and she said, "Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be going on a tour through the United States. I'm going to be in New York, and we're taking the train, and we could easily stop in Baltimore. So we put her up at our homes, and we were uh, we met her at the train station, and Erin and her three assistants got off the train. We were going to have a conference that night at Notre Dame, and Erin had in, been imbibing on the train <laughs> and got off the train and said, Hello, dearies, let's go have a little drinky. <laughs> So we were all quaking in our boots, but Erin pulled it off. And she now, if you get on her website, she talks about that she has had bipolar all of her life and that she did uh, abuse alcohol for many years. As we were writing the book, I got onto her website and discovered that her trip was uh, funded by the Salvation Army. And in retrospect, we have figured out that there were no shelters for battered women. And all of battered women, the only shelters were by the Salvation Army. And so battered women and their kids were going to the Salvation Army shelters, and they knew that they were not equipped. And so someone at their national board or something said, you know, I've heard there's this person in England Maybe if we sponsor her to come, she will get people to start shelters going in the U.S. And that's what she did, and that's what we did. Erin was, uh, oh, you know, she, she, she was a street fighter. I guess that's the best way you can describe her. And I was driving her through Baltimore, and we drove past a, a place of, of row houses, empty row houses that were uh, shuttered up. And she said, what you all need to do is get a bunch of women and children and you just tear down those boards on the windows and you just get in there and squat and you call the newspapers and tell the newspaper that women and children are being evicted. (laughs) Well, we didn't do that. (laughs) 
Yes, <laughs> we had a number of lawyers in our group. Uh, so that was March of 77. Uh, but we did start to get some legislature going then. And in November, we opened our first shelter at 2402 North Charles Street. And the picture of the shelter, that original shelter, is on the, the cover of the book. And then uh, the shelter moved across the street in November or if, of 78. So early on, uh, there were some other task forces that were looking at the issue. And one of the early recommendations was that we should use an empty building on the grounds of Baltimore City Hospital and it would establish a shelter to accommodate not only abused women, but also fire victims, runaways, and people discharged from psychiatric facilities. Uh, so that's Erin Pitsey. Um, I put this up. Marcella is going. <laughs> We, we were so naive. We didn't know what we were doing. This was one of our first uh, manuals, a, show, uh, a battered women, a manual for survival, with a picture of a woman getting socked in the face on the cover. Like anybody's going to pick up a pamphlet with a picture of a woman getting socked in the face, but we've learned since then. <laughs> um, so these are some of the, as Katie said, these are some of the organizations. We had the Catholic Daughters of America, Council of Jewish Women, Women in Self-Help. Uh, this is Shoshana Carden, who Katie mentioned, uh, and Toby Mendelhoff, who recently, who was with WISH. Uh, Lynn Deutschman, who was a very active participant. Lynn's husband worked in Baltimore, and one day he called her and said his secretary had come into work and had been abused by her husband. And her, Lynn's husband said, I don't know what to do, how to help her. So Lynn started making phone calls and realized there was no one to help her. But she ended up pulling together, I think through Wish and a couple of other organizations. And we heard she from... Found us at Legal Aid. Oh, okay. She found Legal Aid. Um, and about 20 years later, was it you, Katie, that one of us heard from Lynn that this person who she had helped 20 years ago <laughs> was now safe and in Florida and remarried and got in touch with Lynn to say... Thank you so much for what you did. That was me in the 60s. <laughs> that is uh, <laughs> Catholic Daughters Eva of America. Barzak. Eva Barzak from the Catholic Daughters of America. Eva is well known because uh, we were having meetings and saying, oh, we've got to get going, got to do something. And we were kind of just chasing our tail for a little while. And one day as she was on her way to our meeting, Eva saw her friend in the street and said, I'm working with this group and we need some money. And her friend gave her $5. And Eva came to the meeting and said, we've got a budget now. We have to keep going. <laughs> and Eva was relentless. No matter what, Eva was the person that said, 
we're doing the right thing. All we have to do is ask people and they'll know it's the right thing. That's the very first shelter on North Calvert Street. There is Marcella, who hasn't changed a bit, <laughs> who was the first president. Um, and these are just some of the stories. Uh, there was a while that I was running a support group for abused women at a mental health center, and uh, a woman came in saying that her husband had threatened her because she had just had a hysterectomy, and when she got home, he wanted to have sex with her, and when she said no, he attacked her with a knife. So I realized that as a nurse, I can't just say you shouldn't have sex for a week or whatever. You need to also say, is that going to be a problem for you? Um, we've known this all along. Battered women's, uh, battered men are extremely jealous and possessive, and they would... Uh, forbid their wife from sitting on the stoop, which those of you that have been in Baltimore for a while know that's what women would do. People would sit on the stoop, but they weren't allowed to. Um, then I, I already mentioned the Airy Pitsy book. This is one of our very first newsletters that um, where we talk about... Um, what it is that we do, and we had some statistics. So uh, it, that at the bottom it says, in 1978, these are the number of women we saw, these are the number of children, uh, this is uh, where we thought they were going. So from the very beginning, we knew that it was very important to document our work and what we were doing. And then this is how long they stayed and their disposition. These were some of our early fundraisers. Uh, we had a, a Skateland Rollathon. Marcella's shaking her head. These, this was our series of logos. The very first logo on the top was the house with an open roof, the one in the middle, and now at the bottom is the current logo, which shows a house in disorder, then gradually being put together to be a home again. Um, today, the House of Ruth is recognized as one of the nation's most comprehensive domestic violence center. It has a staff of more than 90 and a budget of $6 million a year. And I know Sandy is here. She's going to tell you all more about the current... Let me just tell a couple stories. And yes. Marcella wants to, too. Yes. Yeah. So just to, to, to harken back to Eva Barsak. Eva was the one who brought the name of the House of Ruth to us, as well as Toby Mendeloff. When Toby met Marcella um, and got really interested in the issue and took it to the Maryland Commission for Women, before she actually went to the commission, she went to the House of Ruth in Washington, D.C., and she met there and talked with people there. Theirs was a shelter for women. It wasn't specifically for abused women. But... Um, Eva loved the name House of Ruth because it's from the Bible. It's from the, the book of Ruth. Um, and you'll find a quote uh, in the book about it. The, the other um, thing about um, Lynn Deutschman is that um, Lynn had been a public school teacher, and she had um, 
stopped working and was a homemaker, and she became a really ardent volunteer on this issue. And one of the things that she did was work for the uh, Maryland Public Television on a survey that they did. They actually did a telephone survey. And um, they, um, they went to some locations, too, where they had people come in and tell their stories. And then they did a documentary that appeared... Uh, on Maryland Public Television, and Lynn was in the studio at the time when they were doing some filming. And as she was getting ready to leave, one of the cameramen accosted her and started screaming and yelling at her. This is just one example of some of the kinds of difficult um, issues that we, we had with this, um, saying that it was none of her business and it was a private matter, and that was the kind of thing that we heard a lot. Uh, so there was a lot of networking that went on through many different organizations. Um, we had a group down in South Baltimore, social workers, uh, part of the Carter Center, Carruthers Center, Carruthers Center. And uh, we worked with them, and we referred a lot of women to them, uh, and, and they were helpful in Marcella's uh, getting women to speak uh, to the press and, and then there was Major Roberts at the Salvation Army. He actually became a part of the ad hoc group that um, opened the shelter. And, the, and Marcel's going to tell you a little bit about that because, you know, we didn't have a dime other than $5 that Eva Barzak got it. But anyway. Well, let me start first with drawing the line directly to the Pratt. The Pratt was essential to us because they agreed early on to have a window on the street, on Cathedral Street, that would talk about battered women and the issue. And, you know, it was, it was just fabulous, because we knew people were walking by and reading that. And the Pratt had such a, has such a wonderful reputation, and we were counting on that. And it was a way for us to really reach out to a lot of people. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, that was important. But there are a couple of personal things from that, and that is that in my subsequent uh, career as a organizer kind of person, um, I have always made sure that I had a librarian at my elbow. They are the people who can find information, interpret it, and present it in a way that people can understand. Now, I have to admit, I have three of those in my, my immediate family, so, but I do believe of the importance in um, communication to, to various audiences and the role that all these different professions can play. The early days of the House of Ruth, oh my God, I can't tell you what chaos. Um, I was working uh, full-time about a block away from the House of Ruth, and the reason I chose that location, we chose it, was that I could walk there on my lunch break. And um, we had you know, some very skeletal uh, staff, and, but effective, and people were giving us tons of, oh, I want to give you this, and I want to give you that, we were getting things that were utterly and completely irrelevant. Um, and um, things that were in terrible shape. 
So, you know, even that process involved volunteers who would sift through and help us with that. But it was such a compelling issue. And Toby, who you met through the picture, um, said, you know, let me, let me put me in context. I was, what, 26 and um, didn't know from a rich person, from a poor person. But um, Toby said, I know somebody uh, who donates um, to big issues, and she sponsors concerts. And why don't we invite her for lunch? And so I said, well, great, let's do it. So Toby comes to that building uh, with this uh, donor, and uh, I'm telling you, we had cockroaches, we had rats, we had no furniture. And um, the donor comes in, and, you know, I've tried to dress up the best I think I can look at that point in my life. And um, the donor comes in, and she has... Worse clothes on than I have, I will tell you that. And we sit down and we have a wonderful chicken salad sandwich. And the donor is listening to my stories. And boy, we could really reel them out. They were terrible stories. Is just about to put the food to her mouth. And all of a sudden, the chair donated splays. <laughs> and we have this donator. Donate, she's an older woman on the floor, on her back, and Toby having a fit that this is happening. I didn't know what to do. So, I mean, it was just a scene to behold. That was my big fundraising experience. (laughs) Um, So I have to say, things have come a little bit further from that. But those early days, I have to tell you, were just so chaotic. Nobody understood the various roles of staff and board and client. Um, But somehow, it was such a compelling issue that it endures today. So those were the early days. And yet, there, there, there are many more stories, and you're going to read about the seropatist, I think is how you say it, the Johns Hopkins health and mental hygiene, and uh, many city agencies, the mayor. Mary Pat Clark was the one who actually got the second house. We had to move from the one that we first thought was going to work because it was just not a healthy place to be. So it was wonderful. And and agencies have continued and organizations and business people and churches and uh, all kinds of community organizations and clubs and fraternities uh, just really couldn't do more for us and and continue to do so. And now we're going to hear about the current status uh, from Sandy Timmons, the executive director of the House. A little bit different from that row house. That's our uh, current building. I wanted to first say that we are very proud at the House of Ruth today to say that we carry forward the roots, the very purpose of the beginning of the agency. Um, We still find that it's equally important to take care of our clients, to take care of the women who are abused, and also to be advocates for the issue, to continue to confront the systems and the attitudes and the belief systems that perpetuate abusive behavior. And we push both of those agendas forward very strongly, constantly. Um, To give you a bit of a point of comparison, that $5 budget 
that you heard just a moment ago has grown to, even since the slide, $7 million. Um, we're putting together our budget for the coming fiscal year, and it's pushing over that at this point. Now we have to find the revenue to match it. That's another part. Um, we have many locations across the city. We serve clients in several locations within the city. We also work in Prince George's County, Montgomery County, Baltimore County, out of courthouses and out of um, offices. Uh, the statistics that you saw on the slide earlier have grown tremendously. This past year, we served 9,000 victims and about 500, something over 500 children. We served 6,000 friends and family members who come to us for help. It's not just victims that need us. Um, there are many people who understand that someone they care about is being abused, but that person doesn't necessarily see themselves as a victim or doesn't have the desire to reach out. And so we work with friends and family members and help them to understand how to be supportive and how to be helpful to this person they care about. So 15,000 people in the course of a year plus about 600 children is quite a bit different from the beginning. Um, the need continues to grow. We continue to try to fill that need. We also have a program for um, men who abuse or have abused, an abuse intervention program. And we're learning more and more about how to make that an effective way to deal with changing behaviors. Um, it's a 28-week course. It is largely, uh, participants are largely court-ordered to the program. They need to come 28 weeks, 90 minutes every week. And it's a very structured and a very, in some ways, effective program. Um, part of what's so interesting is when you were starting this work and bringing together um, people who could help figure out how to deal with it, nothing was known. Um, Quite a bit is known about the issue now, but we're learning more and more and more all the time, and we're learning more about the complexities of it and how the control that an individual has in an abusive situation affects so many parts of a woman's life. And it's not just a shelter, and it's not just a protective order, and it's not just an abuse intervention program, and it's not just the counseling services that we provide. It's a combination of all of those services plus support from the community that allows our clients to become eventually safe um, in their home. And we depend largely on partnerships all across the city and all across the state to work with us in supporting the needs of our clients. So we call that wraparound services. We call it comprehensive services. Um, and so when I tell you that we have a shelter now that houses 84 women and children at any given time, that's a lot. Um, and we turn people away all the time. The people who are in the greatest need, those who are in danger of serious bodily harm or death, we will not turn away. We'll find a motel room somewhere. We'll find the money to put up these women and children in a motel until we can find an alternate place for them. But there's not enough room in our shelter. Uh, we have... Uh, a health clinic right in the shelter, which is a very unusual situation. Um, Barbara is very proud of the work that we're doing there. It's a partnership with Johns Hopkins. Um, women and children who come to us in the shelter have not had medical service. It's part of the isolation of their abuser. Um, it's part of the lack of any kind of uh, transportation or financial support in order to seek it out. And so the children require uh, health care, and so do the women and our um, 
our partnership with Johns Hopkins is a model. We've been invited across the country to speak to that model and to consult with others to make it work in their own organizations. So we're very proud of that. Um, we have a legal clinic, an entire legal clinic within the agency. There are 20 attorneys on staff. There are staff members, our employees, and the support to uh, support staff to help them um, in their work. The woman who manages our legal clinic is also a registered lobbyist, and she spends all of the time that the legislation is in, um, is active. That's where she is. She's working hard at all of those bills that will support our work and also to prevent legislation that would be harmful to our clients. We have counseling programs for adults. We have group counseling programs. We have uh, therapeutic services for children. We work with county um, and city agencies across the state in, in creating protocols for children who are witness to violence in their home, children whose parents are murdered. Um, we are very, very active in all areas of the community, community activity. And I have to stop because I tend to go on quite a bit. <laughs> There's still more that we do, but... Um, that the, the general notion is that we have grown enormously. Um, our reputation has grown based on the tremendously remarkable work of our founders and the support of the community, and we're just eager to continue to push forward. Thank you. Thank you. Does, does anyone have any questions for uh, any of the four women that you've heard speak? Yes. Um, Sandy, could you talk a little bit about the intervention program? Oh, okay. Could you talk a little bit about the intervention program with the abusers and specifically about how it was developed, where it came from? You know, you said the shelter started sort of in the late 70s. And when did these programs start getting developed? And They would say, I don't want to leave him. I don't want to um, be apart from him. I want the violence to stop. Um, so make the violence stop. Make him stop, because I want my family and my home. And um, about the 80s, the, these programs began to be developed. And um, the, the first was brought together, um, the, the first iteration of this program was really it was called a batterer's program. Um, it was all about shaming the abuser, about blaming the abusers, about being punitive. And it's a punishing approach to his behavior. Uh, it wasn't very effective, as you can imagine. Um, if the purpose is to change behavior, to um, put violence against violence or abusive approach against abusive approach, that's not the way to go. So it evolved over time um, to be more of a change behavior program. At the House of Ruth, we have, um, we have adopted the, the traditional abuse intervention program, but modified it tremendously based on the population that we serve. Um, so Actually, I'll step back. We uh, evolved it also in the way that we present the program. We present it in three different phases. Um, a man comes to the program, and he has to, our facilitators work to um, get each 
person in the program to acknowledge that they did what they did. Um, that, no, you didn't just shove her. You put her head so hard against a wall, it left a dent. Say what you did. The second piece of that is to acknowledge that whatever that action was, was wrong. Big steps, each of those. And then the final piece of this program is designed to help him to change that behavior, to replace it with healthy behavior. What we know about abusers is that many come from violent households themselves, um, and if you don't have any model for how you should behave, somebody has to help model that behavior and practice that behavior. And so that last piece is to replace the unhealthy with healthy behavior. Um, There have been studies done, again, research is very, very big in this area lately, and there has been um, uh, a bit of research in recidivism in these programs. And while there hasn't been a lot of data, there was one study published in the Wall Street Journal this past year that uh, demonstrated that of people, of men who complete the program, the full program, not just attend and drop out, but of those who complete, 60 to 70 percent have exhibited less violence or no violence over the following 18 months. Um, So it's a step in the right direction. We know that that's one way to begin to address the source of it. Another way, and I'm going to go on for one more second, another way uh, we believe at the House of Ruth is to change community attitudes about what it means to behave like a man. Um, I think that you're seeing a lot of that in the media, lots of uh, PSAs now out there. At the House of Ruth, we believe that this is really important, that we need to get out into the community, be visible in the community, and have men representing this issue in the community, not us. Um, and teaching other men how to behave in healthy ways and holding them accountable for behavior and teaching young people. So there's more about that in the future I'll be sharing with you. Yes? Two things. I'm thinking of your relationship with the Ravens and how that, oh, the opportunity for you to work collaboratively with the leadership of the Ravens is one issue I'd love to hear more about. And also, I'm very aware, as everybody is, of the incredible increase in Hispanic population in our city. Yes. And I know that not all of us speak Spanish, but I'm sure that you're doing something in that area that I'd like to hear about, too. Yes. Um, The relationship with the Ravens was a very interesting one. Um, The media talked an awful lot about what the big contribution and, you know, how was, was this an intent to show the public that they're good guys. Um, The story of how the Ravens reached out to us is very different from what the media spoke of. I got a call from Dick Cass way before it was a big public issue, way before, and he was concerned about his staff. The staff was beginning to hear about what what was transpiring with this man that they loved. He was very lovable, and he was very much a part of the office and had interactions with people and was very... Um, philanthropic. He was out in the community all the time, and they were they were stunned. They just didn't know how to reconcile what they thought they knew about this man and what they were beginning to see and finally did see um, in a way that there was no denying what he did. And Dick was most concerned about his staff. Um, we have a training program where we work with businesses to help them to deal with it when it comes into the workplace. 
and he asked us to come in uh, way before the NFL made it a mandate. We were there. We had already done our training with his entire staff and also with the players to bring awareness of the issue. Um, Part of uh, when Dick and I spoke, those first couple of conversations, and he kept saying, what can I do? What can we do? What can, how can we partner? What I said was, we can educate. What I want from you is to leverage your influence in the community because, like it or not, the Ravens have more influence in this community than many organizations, most organizations, and that was what I wanted from the Ravens. Um, and they have carried that out. Um, we have had lots of space on their website. They have did PSA for us. They're part of an event now. We're going to have our second annual Man Up event in the fall. Players and Dick are part of that. They're contributing to lots of other of our fundraisers. Um, they're present anytime we ask somebody to come and speak on behalf of men and the issue. Um, so they continue to be part of that. And we now I'm getting calls saying we just had this idea. Um, all the time, and my staff and their staff work all the time closely. So it's um, it's it's a partnership that I think is important. Um, yes, we they pledged a significant amount of money for three years, but what's more important, I think, is these other pieces and the lasting influence in the future. We're now partners. You know, I don't think it's a three-year relationship and you're gone. So the second uh, question that you have is, yes, indeed, the Hispanic community is enormous and growing tremendously, as is other immigrant populations. We have an office on Eastern Avenue. It's in the heart of the Latino population um, on Eastern Avenue, Eaton, where, where that intersects. And um, our entire staff is bilingual. Um, we serve that population with a slightly different approach because we're mindful of the cultural Differences and the need to approach the issue in a different way based on those cultural differences. But our staff is entirely Spanish-speaking, many of them native Spanish speakers. And we have bilingual people throughout the agency. Montgomery County is growing largely in, in the Hispanic population as well, So and Prince George's County too. So we're very, very mindful. We even brought together a group um, of our staff members to uh, create, and I'll never say this, right in Spanish, but they're called listening sessions, inviting women um, from the community in to talk to us about what they need. Um, so we think we know what they need, culturally specific, but they're telling us in these listening sessions, and we're getting support from an organization um, who does that kind of work, pro bono. Yes. Um, I have a question about... Um, marketing and development because obviously um, you all have a very sophisticated marketing and development in order to get a budget of seven million dollars and I'm wondering over over time um, including some of the founders how has that materialized because I'm a social worker and I work with a lot of agencies that start with a great idea and a lot of passion but not everyone can grow that into an enormous organization I so I was wondering right. how you were able to do that you started you started it it's hard to speak to that but um, I have to tell you that the more people you involve and the more clearly you can articulate what the issues are and really break them down into understandable pieces that people are willing to accept. Um, you know, I have to remember a, 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 tele, a radio thing I did with um, someone, an interview, and it was a very, I thought, very successful interview, and I'm driving down Franklin Street in my little Carmen Gia, 
And this guy comes on the radio and he says, uh, where'd you get the name House of Ruth? Was it because of Babe Ruth? And what a great slugger he... And I'm telling you, you have to appeal to so many different kinds of people and have your point of view understood by them and accepted by them. It's not an overnight thing, but because it's as compelling an issue, um, you know, hopefully your issue is as compelling as domestic violence was. I have one more thing I want to say, and this is a Marcella thing. I am living today in the year 2015 in Florida, and um, I am very, very involved with an organization that works with indigent women. And a lot of the women that we have in this organization um, come in with absolutely nothing. And it's funny you mention the Hispanic, because they all speak Spanish. And in fact, even Katie probably doesn't know that my mother is Hispanic. So, did you know that? Okay, so at any rate, my Spanish skills are pretty good. And, um, but, you know, we know that domestic violence goes through all social classes to all kinds of women. We know that. But the women who have the least resources to stand up and deal with it are the indigent women. And I, I tell you on a daily basis what I face with these women. And I ask you, don't turn your back on them. Um, they are so important. And, our, you know, our public policy leaders right now and our, and our political leaders have turned their backs. And we just can't allow that to happen. So I hope if there's a message I can give to you tonight, me personally, is please continue that fight in whatever way you can. Um, it's just essential. Okay. And I know that Carol was a very, I don't think this is on, actually. It's on. Okay. So I just wondered when she came on, and I just feel like we can't talk about the House of Absolutely. Ruth without talking about Carol. How many years was she the executive director? 26. 26 years. Is that amazing? That she had the stamina to go through 26 years of every day facing these horrible situations and being able to lead through them, I, I just, she's an amazing woman to me. The fact that she went into this prison project, I mean, those kinds of things were so far out of our lens years ago. I mean, we just didn't even see any of that. But she was an amazing leader, and um, we owe a lot to her. And we say so in the book. Yes. So. I have a question. Um, Judge Freeman, I'm one of the students that um, was at the University of Maryland and where I worked at the Baltimore City um, Circuit Court and um, with Nick Conte. Oh, yeah. Yes. And it was an excellent experience. But I want to ask this question because... During the time that I was there, a lot of men was being abused mm-hmm. also. And because of the same-sex marriages that are going on now, and I heard Miss um, Marcella stated that um, the shelter is for 84 women and children. I'm sure you are now starting to get men 
that are seeking um, resources. How do you all handle that? Yes. Uh, the terminology, by the way, has changed over the years. Um, <laughs> we started out calling it um, battered wives, and then we realized, well, there were some people who weren't married, so we called it battered women. And then it very, uh, we, Barbara was instrumental in moving us away from that concept because we didn't want to get it confused with battered children because the, the dynamics are somewhat different. So uh, we talked about domestic violence. Now we talk about intimate partner violence. So it covers, it, you know, we kept expanding, expanding, expanding. So... The question about um, men who are battered, men who are abused, yes, we see that often at the House of Ruth. And we provide services to those men as well, legal services, uh, counseling services. Uh, We have a program for women who abuse. Um, That's the counterpart to the um, Gateway program. And if a man comes to us and he too is in danger of severe bodily harm or in danger of losing his life while he can't stay at the shelter, we will put him up in a hotel just like we do um, the women that we can't house as well. And they get the support services of a client service coordinator just as our women clients do. Do we have any other questions? I, I have two. One I noticed that you said funding was received from the General Assembly back in the 70s. And we know that back in the 70s, there weren't a lot of women in the General Assembly. Yes, and I want to hear that story because I always wonder how women ever got the right to vote in, in, in the United States because it must have been some mothers, some sons uh, uh, were prevailed upon by their mothers. So I'd like to hear how that story went. The, the Legal Aid Bureau um, uh, introduced legislation um, to fund a shelter. It was really um, changed into a requirement that the, the state, I'm not sure at the time what the State Department was called because they kept changing the names, but that anyway, it would be a, a funding from um, the State Department of Health. Do you remember, or was it? I don't know. I th- it's in the book. Um, I, I, I just don't remember. Um, right now what it was. It was Dick Batterton's, uh, I think, was the secretary at the time. But we put we put the bill in that it would be um, uh, a shelter that the State Department would determine where the money would go. Um, and I can remember we were lobbying it for it heavily uh, down in Annapolis, and one of the um, legislators from Montgomery County really took it under his wing and um, pushed it, and he pushed it very hard. And some of the people that I was working with from Legal Aid and the National Organization for Women and some of the other women's organizations were upset because they thought, you know, if he pushes it so and it's it's passed, the bill is passed, and the, go- and the governor signs it, then he'll have a good chance for it to, um, you know, for the a shelter if there was one in that part of the state to get it. And I said, I don't think we should worry about that. I think we should do everything we can do to support him because we have Rosalie Abrams. And that was, and that was, and and actually Marcella wrote the, wrote the grant proposal that was sent to the, uh, 
Well, I can't remember what the, what the name yeah, of it was, and <laughs> whatever it was, um, uh, to, to have the uh, money given to the House of Ruth. And Rosalie Abrams was wonderful. She, she really uh, uh, did a lot of work to see to it that we got it. And so that's how we got the money. She was a, she was a senator from Baltimore City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the second question I have is, is, what is what are your challenges now? We all know that nonprofits, one of their biggest challenges is operating funds, operating funds, operating funds. Always difficult, because it's not something that foundations sometimes are willing to fund. So what is your immediate challenge? Operating funds. Operating funds. <laughs> 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 and if we had a hat, pass it around. <laughs> but you do have materials outside, right? Absolutely, absolutely. The, um, the challenge is that uh, government funding is on a steep decline. It will never uh, reverse its trend. And so traditionally, agencies like ours um, have been run primarily by um, largely government, various forms of government funding. And, and um, we need to replace that with other sources of funding and grow it if we're going to continue to grow our work. I was just going to say all of the proceeds to the book go to the House of Ruth. Yes. All right.